This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Chris Porter, founder of Owl's Nest Sanctuary for Wildlife. Located not far from here in Odessa, Florida, Owl's Nest is a state and federally permitted wildlife rescue and rehabilitation organization. More specifically, the sanctuary rescues, rehabilitates, and releases sick, orphaned, or injured wildlife, including wild birds, among them owls, of course, eagles, and hawks. Wild mammals such as possums, raccoons, foxes, as well as turtles, snakes, and alligators, and more. A retired zoologist from Bush Gardens, Porter started Owl's Nest Sanctuary about a half dozen years ago, and it's a completely volunteer-run operation. In providing their rescue and rehab services, Owl's Nest casts a wide net covering six counties. This nonprofit organization places a premium on protecting and conserving Florida animals. We'll hear all about that in just a moment when we speak with Chris Porter here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Meanwhile, a programming note. Every two years, WMNF reevaluates and makes changes to its programming schedule. Next week, starting June 21st, the station launches the new schedule. And one of the changes is that Talking Animals will begin airing one hour later at 11 a.m. each Wednesday. As it turns out, I'll be out of town next week, missing the first Wednesday of the new schedule. And unfortunately, none of the substitute hosts in the Talking Animals family were available to fill in. So there will likely be a related public radio program airing instead that day at 11 a.m. on next Wednesday. And then I'll be back hosting the show on June 30th and beyond all again now at 11 a.m. Coincidentally, today marks the 18th anniversary of Talking Animals. I launched the show 18 years ago at KUCI, a campus community station at the University of California in Irvine. I brought the program to WMF a little over 15 years ago. I feel really fortunate for the opportunity to continue producing the show on air here. Indeed, later in today's program, we'll hear a brief interview with Lynn Simone, an artist who will be the instructor for a Paint Your Pet class this Saturday afternoon at Painting with a Twist in Lutz. Signed a guide and roll these towards in painting a portrait of their pet. We'll hear how that works and what you'd need to do beforehand to be uh, poised to deliver your pet masterpiece. That's later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss wildlife rescue and rehab with Chris Porter with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Chris Porter on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, y'all. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank uh, you so much for asking us. Of course. So, of course, the focus of our conversation will, will be Owl's Nest, but clearly there's no Owl's Nest without Chris Porter, so I think it'd be uh, helpful and valuable to hear some of your story first. I'm pretty sure from what I can gather that working with animals is a, a running theme of your life, but when did that start exactly? Well, I, I 
I go all the way back to probably eight, nine years old when I was in Pennsylvania. Of course, there weren't any state laws back then to raise animals. So I remember as a little girl raising baby bunnies and baby mockingbirds in Pennsylvania. Um, there wasn't a time that I did not have arrow focus on being and and working with animals for the rest of my life, ranging from everything I ever read to I knew exactly I was going to college to become Actually, I wanted to uh, major in marine mammals, and that's actually what I did. Um, they were my focus. I had a huge love for whales and dolphins, and so well, that's well, where swing, it started. Yeah, well, we'll swing back around to that, but I'm very curious to know, this sounds like it was sort of a precocious uh, desire and focus as a little kid. So, well, I'd be curious to know even more, what was this, the family situation growing up? Was there a big emphasis on animals there? Were there a lot of animals in the house? No, actually, no, you know, actually my mom, she, she was a typical Italian mom that we weren't, she wasn't great on animals. She didn't really want them in the house. I remember my dog was always outside and uh, we also lived in Tulsa. My dad was the one who really focused me and used, he's take me for walks in the Pennsylvania wilderness. And, and I don't know, and my grandfather probably, it was just, um, and my brother and sister also were kind of with animals. My sister always had farm animals and was rescuing them. And my brother, who's a homicide detective to this day for 40 years in Lauderdale, he has always rescued reptiles and parrot down there. So I guess it was inbred in all of us somewhere, and it's got to be my dad because it definitely was not my mom. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's so interesting. So it sounds like your mom's kind of preferences dictated that we're not really having animals animals in the house, and yet I guess your dad's uh, passion for them sort of all but circumvented that rule. Right, right. Well, you know, mom always gave in. Uh, I can honestly say I I had a zillion hamsters and gerbils, and we had saltwater tanks, and so, you know, mom gave in as long as uh, we took care of them. So, unfortunately, she passed a years ago, but she did get uh, to see me reach my passion of all these years and, and was really proud of what I did. Though there was always the comment, Chrissy, you're overdue doing yourself. So, um, you know, she always worried all the way to the end, but yeah, she always, they were always great about it. Didn't matter what I made money, money wise in life. As long as I was happy and reached my passion was always my parents' goal. Yeah, no, that's really great. And obviously it made a huge difference to you because even if your mom wasn't keen on the idea, it sounds like she recognized, (laughs) Hey, we're not going to keep this girl from uh, doing the animal thing as a youngster. And it continued all the way through. So, uh, exactly. They knew I would I mean even when I wanted to work with the cetaceans, they kn- knew I would never make a huge amount of money, but that was okay with them as long as I was happy. So, yeah. you know, they never once said change your major or do this. So that's um, great. And they were thrilled. So that's, that's, um, I'm happy I, you know, they got to see me, all other kids, really happy. That's great. And that's the parental support, really, in the exactly. best sense. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, speaking of cetaceans, so you mentioned a moment ago that, that you were kind of gravitated, at least when you got to college, towards. Uh, marine mammals. Why do you think that was? Is that because uh, some of your uh, earlier years you hadn't really had any direct experience with them and so they were more enticing or what, what was that about? No, I don't, you know, I think all little girls, you know, everybody fell in love with dolphins and and honestly I can, you know, a lot of kids focus that way when you when you see the intelligence level and, you know, when you're young, it's the cuteness of whales and dolphins and I was really big into, back then there was not great environmental laws. I was big into 
breeding national wildlife and I wanted to, you know, help save them. Mm-hmm. So um, I did go to the University of Florida and I actually did focus that way. I actually stayed an extra year to take graduate level classes on a lot of the marine classes. Um, the only reason I didn't stay for my master's is I got a great offer from Bush Garden. So I did change my way and come to Tampa. And it's before we get into that, maybe more directly, I gather that along the way, maybe just prior to this phase that you're just noting, there was a looming job interview with SeaWorld that in retrospect seemed to represent a real turning point for you professionally and, and yeah. maybe personally as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, my gradu- my graduation present from my parents was actually two weeks on a schooner out in the sea, uh, uh, Baja. We went to Baja to I was on a scooter that studied whales. It was the most incredible experience. And um, on that boat, they were actually Howard Hall Productions, who's big into um, doing great documentaries on the oceans, was on the boat. And that, like, sealed my fate. It was incredible to meet them. And I did meet one of their one of their uh, photographers, and, and we ended up um, dating long distance. So my focus was I was going to go to SeaWorld San Diego. I was going to move to California, um, continue my relationship with Mark Conlon, and and that was that was what I focused on. So I did go out to say uh, I actually interviewed for San Diego Zoo and San Diego SeaWorld, and got a position at the penguin exhibit. So my goal was I was packing up and leaving and going there, and um, I met my husband at Bush Gardens, and um, everything kind of switched around. I knew <laughs> one day when I got on the plane that I was not supposed to be doing this anymore; that I should have focused on something else. So that's hmm. what I ended up doing. Wow. So that impulse kind of overrode the uh, the penguins and all the other plans that uh, you had kind of made for being out in Southern California. It yeah, sounds like. it, yeah, it definitely switched everything around, and um, it you know it, life kind of throws you those things, and you definitely should listen right to your head and heart, and and that is why I I stayed. I take it you're glad that you made that choice all these years ago, <laughs> right? Yes, not only my career and everything that I learned um, all those years ago, it's probably, what, 30 years ago now, um, focused me towards land mammals and everything that I learned at Bush Gardens. And um, But obviously, I met my husband, got married, and we have two girls. So, yes, it was definitely worth it. Sounds like it. Well, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Chris Porter, founder of Owl's Nest Sanctuary for Wildlife in an Odessa, Florida, rescue and rehab organization that tends to sick, injured, or orphan wild birds, wild mammals, reptiles, and more. If you'd like to ask Chris a question about wildlife rescue or rehab or something related, or just offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. Yeah, so when that fork in the road went one way and you went the way you've described, basically that also meant you went to work at Bush Gardens. Now, people listen to this show online or as a podcast from uh, all over the country, really. So for those not familiar with Bush Bush Gardens that are listening. Can you describe it a little bit, what, what it is and so on? Sure. Um, Bush Gardens was owned by Anheuser-Busch, and he had um, certain parks. Actually, he ended up buying SeaWorld, so he owned all the SeaWorld and Bush Gardens, Virginia, and Tampa, and their focus was always um, Mr. Bush, the old Mr. Bush, the original that I met, was huge into animals. Um, he used to come to the park and and sit in the pens with the, with the babies in the nursery. He was an incredible man that, you know, 
focused a lot on on conservation right from the start, and so did his family. Um, Bush Gardens has rides, obviously, to bring in the money, but it was a great mix of animal exhibits and also the the rides. So it was a theme park, you know. So there were definitely it wasn't like working for an absolute zoo, but mm-hmm. it had a lot more pluses because of the money angle that was backed behind Bush Gardens. We really didn't want for anything in life with those animals. Yeah. And uh, it is it is an interesting combination of sort of amusement park and, and zoo like right. uh, situation. So now I think uh, your time there, you were the lead or uh, lead zoologist, if I'm not mistaken. Well, um, or you became I when guess, I started. They they offered me the job in the animal nursery. I was going to replace somebody that was going on maternity leave. So I did do one month in zoo education, where I did the zoo camps with kids and um and then they transferred me into the nursery so um let's see that was about yeah 91 i got the job in the nursery 1991 and i worked there 11 years so obviously i worked my way up to a lead position i was also blessed with because the nursery um and all of us who were senior keepers i worked with the the chimps and the gorillas there wasn't anything i didn't work with because we got help all over the park but then i also for five years took over the incredible parrot breeding area that was gardens had behind the scenes so um i would end my day with the nursery and go back there and take care of we probably had over 150 pairs of back then it was a big deal to be raising the parrots to save them because they were so decimated in the wild so you know i've worked with things like lear's macaws that they are still highly endangered but that that really became a love of mine too parrots really really reached me i actually probably cried more about leaving them in the nursery than I did anything, you know, than in the nursery. So um, I, there wasn't anything I didn't raise or work with, honestly, raising from giraffe. We raised white tigers. We raised lions. Um, I used to travel with them and do Jay Leno and the Today Show with various animals. But, um, you know, you can't beat that experience in life. It was, I look back and it was, you don't, you don't realize how fortunate you were to have such an incredible job and get paid to do it. And given the, sounds like tremendous variety of animals that you helped or worked with or cared for in one way or another. Were there some that over time really sort of you just felt particularly bonded with in one way or another? Um, well, people say, I mean, we raised a lot of birds in the nursery and, and and raising birds, period, is a very complicated and hard job because their diets are so specialized. So I look back to the supervisors of the bird department, which actually were like second fathers to me, being that my parents were still in Pennsylvania. They really um, mentored me a lot. I did love the birds, but I was always a mammal girl. Um, the giraffe were always there. It's, it's hard to explain. Giraffe babies don't just eat for anyone. And we used to have a group of maybe three or four of us that we could automatically get that baby giraffe on a bottle just by our technique and our way. So yeah, I did always bond and cat, big cats. I enjoyed doing the lions and the tigers back then. Not big into primates. They never really, you know, some people really focus towards them. But, um, you know, I was blessed. I met Jane Goodall when Myambi Preserve opened. and um, But I never had that that huge want to work with, with primates. Yeah. There really wasn't anything I didn't want to work with, honestly. Right. And it sounds like the job, the nature of the job, especially over that that number of years, kind of puts you in a situation where, hey, I today or this week or this month or this year or whatever, uh, these are the animals that need, you know, my care. Or this is kind of what my, yeah. my assigned area is or whatever. Right. And with the Better drafting... In the 90s. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say about the drafting. So, are baby giraffes, uh, just to, to follow up on what you're noting there, I guess when they're 
being bottle fed? Are there some they, they just they kind of refuse or they don't necessarily go There's for it unless somebody thicker head in life? You think teenage kids are thicker heads? You have no idea what a baby giraffe, and you have to remember they're born six feet and ranging at a hundred pounds when they're when they're dropping. So um, you know we just you gotta when you work with animals and you're good with good at it, you have a way about you. I always say you have that you have that um, behavior in you that. that that you're good with it. There's just people that have that that thing that animals respond to and are drawn to. And that's when I knew because I had that thing that there were there were very little things we couldn't pull through in the nursery. Um, I knew that I was in the right place. So um, I have people like that on my team now. They just have that technique about them that it's not anything but pure talent and it's a God-given talent, honestly. Yeah. Animals can respond to somebody. And it sounds like if I follow your kind of overall story arc here that even as a little kid you not only had that passion for animals that you know yeah. you had to kind of persuade your mom to like sort of let up on the rules <laughs> but but that you obviously probably had a gift of some kind even though it might have been a little bit unformed at that point but you probably right. had that kind of connection even as a kid right i, I it, it sounds you know maybe it sounds sappy to people but it truly is a talent from god that you when you work with animals and yes i have book knowledge but it is not the book knowledge that makes me what I am. It is totally how the animals have responded to me, how things respond that I can pull through. It's my technique. It's my patience. It's my, you know, you yeah. kind of joke. When you're good with animals, you're really not good with people a lot of times. So <laughs> I, I knew that I always, I knew I always had the animals to uh, fall back on. So I never could have been social, you know, director or something like that. It's yeah. just, um, I have patience all day long for animals. I do not have that kind of patience with people a lot of so. Well, and also but, to draw yeah, the distinction you know, between what you're saying about book knowledge, I mean, it sounds like somebody could be equally trained or academically oh, yeah. sound as you are, but they might come upon that baby giraffe and still not get the baby giraffe to take the, uh, exactly. the, the bottle, right? So, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I've met people that have a PhD in zoology, and it's all verbal. It's all coming out of a book of what you think it should do, you should do or what you think you should try. And that's not going to cut it when it comes to hands-on with the animals. I'm not saying it doesn't and help because like I said I've my whole life I've read and read and read about animals and um, um, behaviors and yeah. You know, just sometimes you just, it's got to be both, in my opinion. And, and it's very rare to come across people that are like that. I, I do have someone on my team right now. And, and back then, I, we did. We had a group of great people. They're all gone from Bush Gardens now, unfortunately. Bush has taken a different focus. The nursery kind of closed. Maybe three years after I left, they just didn't have the people that could do. We did amazing things, one of a kind. We, we were the first ones to raise stable antelope back then. Mm. Um, and you know, people used to call us from other um, zoos in the United States to, to draw back on our knowledge. How did you do this? How did you do that? It's not quite like that anymore, unfortunately. What would you say Bush's focus has moved on to now? Um, well, as everyone knows, Bush got, I would say, accidentally sold. Um, I don't know, maybe it's about 10 years ago. I don't even know how long it is that InBev owns them. And they will always be a theme park. And the focus, you know, to bring in people to the theme parks, not necessarily the animals, it's mm -hmm. the ride. So, you know, it's, it's got to be a great balance. I think Disney Animal King's done a great great job of, of hitting that balance. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but definitely it it always has the focus of the animals. I'm blessed that they are my vet and we are 
backed by them still to this day, and they do everything for me. And I couldn't yeah. I couldn't do Owl's Nest without them. But um, they de- they don't they don't raise things. It's not uh, it's kind of taboo now to be pulling animals from moms like they used to in the nineties. Yeah, that was a huge trend because you wanted them to survive and you wanted them also to be passed to other zoos so we could get them breeding. That was the focus in the nineties. It definitely strayed away from that as you went towards, you know, the year 2000, it was more, it was, you know, yeah, leave them with the mom until we see what's going to happen kind of deal. So they didn't need the animal nursery as much anymore. Mm. They still raise babies, but not, you know, we were in a glass house, honestly, if anyone knows the animal nursery at Bush, it was literally a a building of windows. You felt like you were in a fishbowl your entire life. So oh, wow. you couldn't do anything without people outside knowing it. So um, yeah, but it you know that experience in life I just would never pass up. It was truly who can say that they did that in life, honestly. Well, given that shift that you're kind of mentioning about Bush itself, but I think it sometimes represents a broader shift. Did you happen to see the piece in uh, Sunday's New York Times about zoos? Is this a recent piece? I yeah, just this not. last, just this last <laughs> I would Sunday. I to tell you, I had time to read the newspaper, but yeah. I'm not inferring. Okay. But no, I did not. Okay. The- well, the writer of the piece apparently has authored a soon-to-be-published book called Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World. But her New York Times piece, which maybe it was partly excerpted from the book, I'm not quite sure, was uh, entitled Modern Zoos Are Not Worth the Moral Cost. And so she was, I think, sort of raising yeah. some questions about some of the things you mentioned. I mean, some of the breeding, some of the captivity, some of the right. things that go on and that people have kind of, over the years, I think, reassessed the impact on the animals and wondered for people well, just to... Well, that's a subject that I'm very passionate about. I don't think people understand, even even to the point of SeaWorld and all the controversy over the killer whales and things like that. You know, when you are a child and you see animals in a zoo or an aquarium and it hits you what you're supposed to do, like right now when I'm talking about it, I have goosebumps. It was the reason of having a captive wildlife zoo or aquarium that made me fall in love even more with animals. My, You know, we went to SeaWorld as kids and every time I saw those whales and dolphins, it was just, I did a hard feeling to just, I knew what I was supposed to do. And that was my focus. If you take away zoos and aquariums from any generation, I feel it's a huge loss because mm. they do serve a purpose. That purpose is to make people care about those animals, to make them want to save them. And ma- and that changes into a worldwide broader sense that you want to save what you just saw. So those zoos focuses are not on breeding babies like they used to be. Mm-hmm. I know that like Lowry Park, they are an incredible little zoo that their focus is not only saving species like the red wolf and things that you got to captively breed them because it's just not working out in Florida and the eastern United States to get them to breed in the wild. We have to establish um, a group. So I feel that if you take away any of those, which that would probably never happen, honestly, you take away what's possibly the future of people working and wanting to work with animals and aquatic life. I, 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 like I said, I saw whales and dolphins at SeaWorld as a kid, and I knew that's what what I wanted to do. And honestly, behind the scenes, SeaWorld, (laughs) they treat their cetaceans um, I used to train over there with them. We used to do animal behavior with the killer whale staff all the time. That um, they truly, those animals are so cared for and loved and the best of the best, including Bush Gardens back then. They they used to get better food than I used to laugh that their fruit, wherever they got it, was better than what we used to buy at the supermarket. Wow. Taste and quantity. So, yeah, uh, yeah, that's the way I feel about zoos yeah. and aquariums. Well, they will always serve that focus. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think there's a lot of people that, that are in and around 
the animal world in one capacity or another, who philosophically it, it, it can be a very polarizing issue because I think there's a lot of right. people who obviously don't share your view don't and just say it, the yeah. minute they're in captivity and, and everything that goes with that, that's... So, yeah, if you have if you do have a chance, you might want to go back and, and find okay. this piece. It was in Sunday's yeah. uh, New York Times and uh, it was it raised some interesting issues. But now, let's, before we uh, uh, spend too much time on this other thing, let's walk me through the journey from Bush Gardens or, or the gap after that, maybe, yeah. to creating Owl's Nest Sanctuary for Wildlife. How did that come about? Um, well, it took me a while to um, get pregnant. Uh, from one reason or another, we went through non-fertility uh, treatments and everything. Couldn't, couldn't get pregnant when I finally did, and I still worked. I promised the whole time I was pregnant at Bush, I was coming back, coming back, coming back. No, nothing would change that. Um, actually was um, high risk to begin with, and, and of course, the baby giraffe that I spoke about, Cupid at Bush Gardens was the last baby giraffe I tried getting a bottle on, and Cupid decided to kick me right um, beside where I was pregnant in the mm, gut, and yikes. the vet was standing there, and she goes, oh, you're done. You're going home. You're going on bed rest. So I did. I ended up on bed rest with, and had my first daughter prematurely. She was four pounds when she was born, and it is amazing how things can change when you look at your, your first child. So, um, you know, I knew, I knew the minute she was born that I wasn't going back. So I could not pass that, that baby to, to a, a daycare at the, the weight of five pounds yeah. after, you know, pregnancy leave. So it kind of was funny. I remember calling my mentor, Mike Wells and saying, Mike, I don't, I don't think I'm coming back. And he was laughing. He goes, I knew that already. <laughs> so I did, I gave up my career at 11 years. Um, it was hard, but it, it, it was the right thing to do. And I, um, I became a house mom. Mm-hmm. And I raised Rachel, who's 20 now, and I raised Emily, who's 17. And that's what I did. I I focused on the kids and being a great mom and, you know, cooking and spending time with family. Sure. So that was that was my choice. I, and I look back on the, four, it was actually 14 years that I didn't do anything with animals. And I did a home-based business to make money. And, and I'm, you know, I can't sit still. People will tell you that I could be half dead with a migraine and I still am going. So um, I did party light and became a top leader for them and, and made a lot of money and earned nine years of trip mm. all over the world world with them so it was it was a different aspect in my life it was it was a lot of good times so yeah. i wouldn't miss it for the world i was there for everything with the girls and then how did the uh, owl's nest get started <laughs> i blame my zookeeper friends debbie bond called me one day and said oh you you know the girls are older you're kind of wasting your talent chris you you could raise anything just help me because she she had had a state license with florida and she was raising mainly the small mammals um, she said, you know, just raise some baby rabbits and squirrels and, and that's all you really need to do. Just ra- help me raise them on my license. And, and so that's how it started. So I did start taking baby squirrels and baby bunnies. Um, and obviously, if you don't know, if you're licensed in, by the state or federal, these are all volunteers. We don't get paid to do this. Is that is that complicated? Would that complicate the license if somebody was paid versus a volunteer? or just you, uh, you cannot. Well, let me take that back. When an organization is as big as ours, yes. Your board can vote and get a paycheck. Um, I've never taken money as a paycheck after all these years. It it doesn't complicate it. It is allowed. 
Oh, okay. But I feel that money takes away from what you need for the animals. Sure, the resources. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of strict laws. And, and it took me months, months of figuring out, coming from the zoo world where you're black and white of what you do and who helps you. And wildlife rehab is not like that at all. You kind of are blindsided to figure it out on your own. Yeah. <laughs> so it took me months to, to graduate from my thinking. And I, you know, I had a lot of great help, like Mary Opal at Nature world and and some other people and um but the more people learned what i used to do the more they kept throwing at me hmm. so it went from baby squirrels and bunnies to oh my god what happened in three months so um you know they were sending me things like back then um seaside was not what it was there was a difference so i would get the red knots which is an endangered species for our state they would get red tide come hmm. in and i would be pulling them through and so that's how I got my federal license one day. It was, oh, okay, Chris is doing this. Okay, we got to get her under a federal license like now. So I had the federal license within a week wow. from um, fisheries. So um, it moved really rapidly, really and, rapidly. And where in that timeline, I imagine somewhere there was a significant situation with owls, since that's kind of at least the name would yeah, suggest so, that they're, they're yeah, critical. People people don't understand when you get a federal license, you, you get asked, okay, what are we, you going to name your group? And you're kind of put on the spot. So I really didn't know which way to go. Mm. I do love owls. I think out of the raptors. Um, the birds of prey, they, they are my favorite. So I sat here going, okay, well, I know I don't want to do just birds. So I had to focus it somehow on owls nest sanctuary for wildlife, make sure the wildlife was in there. Mm-hmm. And that, so yeah, that's how the name came about. I will say that we focus on a lot of owls and, and because of my name, when people search for owl rescue, I come up a lot, but sure. birds of prey are definitely not my main love. Um, but I do enjoy, uh, I really enjoy barred owls. Um, and, and this time of year, we've got a zillion baby screech owls that we pull through for release back to the wild. So, but that's how the name came about. It was kind of, you need to name now. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Just let me think so. of something really quickly. Yeah. Yep. So that's what, exactly how that happened. So Chris, what animals or, or birds for that matter are the most frequent patients of that? That's the right word here that the uh, Owl's Nest Sanctuary tends to uh, treat. Well, back in, you know, back when I started six years ago, we definitely got a lot of the small mammals, the the uh, possums, the squirrels, and the bunnies. And mm-hmm. then when the birds started coming in, um, we, we did a little bit of everything. I will tell you, I did reptiles and, and things. And then I started getting introduced almost right away. Um, I work a lot with gopher tortoises. Uh, I really didn't have a love of reptiles, per se, even going through bush. They were mm-hmm. okay in my mind, but now our group is definitely has a huge chunk of time. We we do the most gopher tortoises in the state now. Wow. And that's because when you come from a zoo world, I am all about research and reporting. So when I get an animal, even back then, I was like, oh my God, I should tell somebody that, you know, this animal's in and in rehab. So I started documenting where they came from, what the injury was, what happened when I released, that kind of stuff. And I just ended up by dumb luck finding who you report to because there's really no information per se that tells you to do that. So you would get endangered species or like the threatened species, gopher tortoises. And I'd be like, why doesn't anybody want to know what's going on? It's just not, um, it's not clear cut. So yep. A lot of reptiles we do now. I do, 
um, I definitely become specialized in gopher tortoises. Um, I do love them. I'm very passionate about them. That also led to us uh, two years ago becoming, it's called a Head Start program. Diamondback terrapins is another threatened mm. species for our state that um, are going on the threatened species list this year. We just had meetings about that. And I start them, if people find little hatchlings, they're like a mouthful for, for fish. Yeah. in the ocean. So I keep them for a while, get them bigger, and then we do a release program, and we work with one of the, the state parks here. So I, I lean towards reptiles. We have a lot of reptiles now, people will tell you, but um, I love, you know, the research and the reporting. We get a lot of sandhill cranes. Mm. <clears throat> that That's a huge... That's a, I could do a whole show on what we need to do with the sandhill crane in the state of Florida. Yeah. It's a, it's a, people do not know how many of these die in a day because of car hits. Yeah. And, and things so but yeah those kind of animals we definitely uh, tend to have focused on a lot and how are you or your colleagues there notified when somebody spots or finds an animal that is sick or injured mm-hmm. what's what's the process to to let you know and then how are you able to respond so most of the calls over the year it's definitely changed it used to be word of mouth or who knew who um, social media is a huge aspect of, of it for anybody in rescue people tag you all day long on Facebook. I wish I had the time to go there. So they have learned over the year, you know, people text me what the problem is mm-hmm. going on. Address picture is what I asked for. Yeah. But also Florida Fish and Game have a hotline that you can call and, and their dispatch knows who to call that has a license. And again, this is this has progressed to a great system over the years. You know, Fish and Game had a couple names. I don't I don't I wouldn't say it wasn't organized, but I feel like myself and Nancy Murrah and and people like that that are the main licenses now for Central Florida, we have definitely sent them in the right direction on how we need the animals to get reported to us quicker so we can deal with it. Um, so it, it's a it's a progression every day yeah. on on making it a little smoother than the day before, honestly. And how, I think we established really on that I was not a strictly volunteer, all volunteer run operation. How many volunteers are there in total, would you say? <laughs> so we went from very little to we have over 300 volunteers. We wow. now cover, I heard your intro, we actually cover 11 counties now. Oh, wow. Um, Hard to keep up. Fishing game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it was up to fish and game, we would probably cover more. They they have a need. They have a need for people like myself. When you they you know obviously they have found a good thing with several of us. Um, I'm blessed that one of my main people took over Seaside Sanctuary. Melissa mm. Edwards is mm-hmm. down there. So we have a great system. So the need progresses. That yeah you know it's can you go to Sebring to get this? Do you have a person? So my people are. Um, so incredibly uh, focused and driven. They will, you know, one of our stories is the baby beaver we have. Somebody called me from the panhandle and said, we have a baby beaver hit by a car. We understand you used to work for Bush and you know how to raise it. Can you do it? And most people would probably say, no way, we're not driving. My team, they got in the car right away and went up for that beaver. Wow. And brought it down. So um, I'd say 11 counties, but like every day I'm like, oh God, should I put this call up? There's no hope for that bird of somebody doesn't help it from our team. Right. So, so it's we, expanding. We have definitely 
spread. Yeah. And it makes me wonder now, Chris, is that, I mean, 300 plus volunteers, that, that's obviously a lot of volunteers. But mm-hmm. I'm guessing some days, at least, it's probably impossible to treat all the birds and animals that you do get notified about, get texted about, that need medical attention. So how do you decide who to tend to? I mean, is it kind of a triage situation or uh, how do you? I mean, I, we there isn't a call that we don't handle. So I, I put them up no matter what's going on. And, you know, people need to understand it, it may take us six to eight hours to get there. You know, again, with volunteers, people are working. Sure. And have, have other commitments. And then, yeah. and then they'll look at the dispatch that I have and say, oh, I can go for that. So though you can't save everything, um, no matter who you are, we try our best to get the animal out of the situation or tell the people how to handle it till we get there. I, I do not ever recommend feeding. Um, they can go put water in the cage. But a lot of it is education now, and I mm-hmm. run the phones, and, and some days I get over 200-plus calls this time of year. I mean, wow. literally, that's not a lie. So my phone goes 24-7, and I try my best to personalize and get back with everyone. Because, again, if you educate that person on why that baby bird is on the ground, then next year, hopefully they remember, oh, that's right, they should be on the ground. They're mm-hmm. getting fed by their mom. There's nothing wrong here. We yeah. don't need to worry about it. Right. So because a lot of my team is educators from Bush, my director of education actually works at Bush still. Um, we focus a lot on education. Um, hopefully it makes a little dent somewhere for somebody what, what they can do to help. And and so those of us who are directors, we we work the phones and it's a hard, it's a very hard job. I get yelled yeah. at a lot. So. Well, no doubt. And we're sort of nearing the end of our time here, but I have a couple <laughs> more key questions. One of which, as you describe, like the 200 plus calls a day and just kind of the relentless pace, how do you stave off burnout? Yeah, that that's, um. I think that is my a dad again. My my dad was the CEO of Mack Trucks actually, mm. and he was a driven man. He ha- that was an aspect in our family behind the scenes to be the very best, to be and to do your passion. And to this day, my dad is the same way. You know, I take care of him now here in Tampa. Uh-huh. Um, so though I would I would be lying not to tell you that when I you know when people are being their way towards me, I mean I it's, it ranges from the people that adore you to, you you know, I can at least once or twice a day, people don't understand the word volunteer. And, and I can't, you know, when the animal passes in their arms and it's been four hours that we're trying to get it, they're mad. They are mad. (laughs) So, um, I, you know, I've, I haven't hit that burnout. It's probably a harder thing than what I did at Bush with the eight hour shift and getting up every day. Yeah. This is supposedly when you want to do it. It's really not. Sounds like it's around the clock. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a toll some yeah. days. And um, again, my team, we have a great, great board and, and I have great friends that take over for me a lot. But um, it is definitely my driven passion. Yeah. I, I try to always wake up the next day and say, OK, another day. What, you know. Yeah, we're gonna do this and do it right. So, I gotcha. you know, who knows how long I'll be able to keep up with the pace? The pace. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully for a long time. Yeah, well, let's hope for all the animals' sake. Well, we're just about yeah. at the end of our time, Chris. But one more quick question is: Let's say someone's listening and decides, hey, you know, I'd like to volunteer with Owls Nest. What's the procedure? How would they get started? Right. So we're obviously on every social media group. Um, you can find us. Uh, we have our website. We have a Facebook site. Facebook, we do update quite a bit with videos and releases and things. Mm-hmm. You have a. Form 
form on there. It's a volunteer form. Just fill it out, and okay. I have a whole volunteer-based um, group that will onboard you and figure out where you want to be. You know, we range from working our property to you can do, be doing stuff at home, working with our fundraising group and our event committee and things like that. So hopefully now with COVID gone, right. we will be back out. Um, it took, you know, all of us with, with uh, rescues took a hit last year, and how sure. we survived, I do not know. It's by the grace of everyone that loves Owlsnest with the donations, we yeah. survived COVID. Oh, that's great. Because we didn't have the events to bring the money in to sure. save animals. Yeah. So that's, that's what you would do, and okay. we will find a place for you. Great. All right, well, we've been speaking with Chris Porter. Again, it's called Owl's Nest Sanctuary for Wildlife. The website is simply owlnestsanctuaryforwildlife.com, but as uh, Chris has noted, they're on uh, social media pages. Facebook might be the best place to start other than the website. Yep. So, Chris, thank you so much for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals and uh, all your great work uh, attending to all those uh, sick and injured uh, uh, and orphaned uh, animals and birds. I appreciate it greatly, and thanks again for having us. Hopefully we'll do it again someday. You bet. And uh, thank you Thank you, thank you for getting the word out about All it. Right. We, we love it. Thank you. Bye-bye now. In a moment, we'll hear from Lynn Simone, who will be guiding a paint-your-pet class, a small class with limited seating, by the way. This Saturday afternoon in Lutz, you can bring food and drink to this class. Come on! And you're painting a portrait of your pet. More on this in a moment. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece selected with the conversation with Chris Porter that we just had in mind. I spliced together a couple of snippets. I'm calling it Owls, and this is by Matt Bronger in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Anyway, Harry Potter, um... Like, I like them, I like the books, I like the movies, but I think they send the wrong message to our kids. And that's that it's okay to own an owl for a pet. <laughs> no. Okay? I'm from Oregon, I know. Owls are made of claws, feathers, and hatred. That's it. <laughs> like, owls don't give a crap. You ever look at an owl, the rage and hatred in his eyes? Up in a tree, like, who? Who? Who's next to die? It's you, mouse! Owl! And I'm back. Hating everything that lives. But the kids want owls. Look, I know a lot of you guys are like, nuts to you, I'm getting an owl. Don't do it, okay? Because a friend of mine was driving once after a storm, and he found a baby owl that fell out of a tree, right? A baby owl. Can you imagine anything cuter than a baby owl? Like, don't hurt your brain. It's impossible, right? <laughs> Not even a kitten with an eye patch is cuter than a baby owl. And that's cute. Little pirate kitten, right? So my friend, yar, so my friend, <laughs> my friend gets this, uh, gets it home and he calls the Humane Society. He's like, hey, I found a baby owl. How do I raise it? And the guy's like, let it go, dummy. The Humane Society called him a dummy. Like, their name means the be nice society. You know they weren't messing around, you know. But they told him this. They said an owl that you raise in captivity will never stop trying to attack you. Like, and it knows it's you. It knows who you are. Imagine having this animal in your house growing strong off its hatred of you. <laughs> Just sitting in a cage doing owl prison exercises, getting ready. <laughs> like waiting for that day he makes his Hannibal Le Lecter-like escape wearing another owl's face. Surprise! <laughs> I'm not the good owl. Death! <laughs> like you come home, he's taunting you. You've had a hard day at work coming home and you see this. Hey, how's it going, buddy? Yeah, it's me, your owl. <laughs> Didn't get that promotion, huh? That sucks. Know what else sucks? I'm gonna kill you when I get out. Oh, you're gonna hide from me? You can never hide! My head goes all the way around! You're dead! 
All right, stay loose. Prepare for war. Stay loose. Thank you, guys. All right, that was Matt Bronger with a, a piece that we're calling Owls, taken from his debut set on Letterman. Now it's time to hear my brief conversation with Lynn Simone about the Paint Your Pet class she's leading this Saturday afternoon. That's June 19th in Lutz. This is Lynn Simone on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning. How are you? I'm really well. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. So let's say I wanted to pet one of uh, our pets and made the difficult choice amongst the five and selected our, our crazy but very photogenic cat named Eclipse. Take me through the main steps. What would I do first, and, and then how would things go this Saturday? Okay, so you would uh, look online, mm-hmm. go to paintingwithatwist.com. Okay. Uh, select your location, and this Saturday from 1 to 4, uh, Wesley Chapel is hosting Paint Your Pet, my favorite class. Um, you would register right there online. Okay. Um, there are different surfaces to choose from, so you can select your surface and do your registration right there. Um, and then you would send your photo in uh, via email. And I'm interested in that. It sounds like that's kind of a pivotal thing from what I saw online. What is that? Because that seems to need to be done in advance of the class. What happens with that uh, that emailed photo? Correct. Well, the instructor that teaches the class does all the pre-sketching of the pets. Ah. Um, we do only have three hours, and um, that, that preliminary sketch is the most important thing, so we get the likeness of your animal. So when you come to class, you're actually just doing the painting part. So that gives you kind of a running start with someone like yourself that's kind of said, okay, well, here's, we got your photo of uh, the cat or whatever, and here's kind of like a rough sketch outline for you to then add the paint. Uh, during the class right. itself. It's a it's a sketch outline, but it also has some of the values in it, the darker areas, so that you know where the darks and the lights go. And you find... So, and when, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was just going to say, do when, you find that typically uh, people are selecting dogs or cats, or is it pretty evenly split? Or, I or? would say most of the time it's 75% dog. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally we do get an all-cat class. Okay. Uh, and sometimes we get interesting things such as geckos. Yeah, I was going to ask about other pets, yeah. Turtles, yeah. Okay. No, we don't discriminate. You can paint any animal that you'd like to paint. Yeah. And then how does it, once people come in and sit down and and you've been nice enough to kind of sketch the preliminary part of their pet, how does the actual painting go typically? Is that uh, pretty, go pretty well well, or? We have, we have a method that's pretty well proven. Okay. Um, We, from the background, um, which kind of loosens people up, uh, especially those who have never painted before. Mm -hmm. And basically we tell you how to hold the brush, when to rinse the brush, um, what the different strokes will look like. And we'll do the background first, let that dry. Uh, And then we we do some color blocking. So it's kind of like putting the base coat on when you paint your house. First coat, maybe a little bit see-through but it sets the base for the second coat, which makes the whole thing come alive. Um, And then after that, we do directional first stroke. And the last thing we do is make the animal come alive by putting the eyes, nose, and mouth in there. Wow. So our people tend to be, by the time it's, I think it's a three, three, four-hour class, if I'm not mistaken? It's three hours. Yeah, yeah, one to four, I think, this uh, Saturday, right? Correct. Yeah. So by the time people have done and they're in the end of their three hours, most people tend to be pretty happy with the portrait they've created? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's our goal. We leave the yeah. whole last hour for the features for the animal. Mm-hmm. Um, the eyes tend to be the most important part, so we want to get that right to where they're looking at you and that personality comes out. That's great. And have you had some students repeat the class just so they could paint a different pet of theirs? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I've worked at all three of our locations uh, that these owners have in yeah. Trinity, uh, Carrollwood, and Wesley Chapel. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had one veterinarian in the Carrollwood location and she came in, I believe it was seven times in a year. Oh, my goodness. Um, she she did her own pets, and then she did Pets Family. Wow. So once you get going. Yeah. It's, uh, Sounds like she got it's hooked. a great way to spend some time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Okay, so one more time for people to find out more if they want to enroll in this class or maybe the next time it comes around. Uh, I guess you're suggesting paintingwithatwist.com is where they would look for the information. Com, yep, and then you can select your location. Okay. Each one of our locations um, teaches the class once a month and they're usually on different weekends so you have a choice. Okay. And are they typically uh, and in the afternoon like this one is? Yep. Yeah, uh, 1 to 4, 12 to 3, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, but we also do private events where you can book a uh, private paint your pet party Okay. Um, with with 10 or more people. Um, we It's a great team building exercise and we've had a lot of success with those private events. Great. All right. Well, this sounds super fun and exciting and Lynn, thank you so much for taking some time to explain it to us and we'll look forward Thank to you so much for having us. We you hope bet. to see you there. And they can uh, register and get their pet mailed in um, by Thursday evening in order right. to be in Saturday's class. Great. All right. Thanks again, Lynn. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Next Wednesday, again, I won't be here. I'll be out of town on a family trip, but I will return two weeks from today on June 30th at a new time of 11 a.m. with the producer of the Netflix series Dogs, and they've added cats. WMNF Tampa, 